Okay, so let's get started here. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this wonderful book of Deuteronomy, a book that your son quoted from many times. We ask that you will help us to understand it and to glean what it has for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Deuteronomy, Jesus Christ, our true prophet. We know that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of Moses' promise of a prophet like him. The Hebrew Bible gives to the book of Deuteronomy the name Devarim, words, from Deuteronomy 1.1. These are the words Moses spoke to all Israel. The Septuagint title, Deuteronomion, means second law or second giving, second law giving, because the book contains a restatement of laws given in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Deuteronomy, of course, is the fifth book of the Torah, the five books of Moses. All but the last chapter of the book are attributed to Moses. Joshua, Moses' successor, probably wrote the last chapter after Moses' death. Moses wrote the book after he gave the three messages in the book, sometime before his death in 1406 B.C. After the 40 years of wandering described in the book of Numbers, the Israelites were finally ready to enter the promised land. The key word here is covenant. Speaking of the special relationship that God established with his people. The book can be organized around the three farewell messages Moses gave while the Israelites camped on the plains of the Jordan River, east of the Jordan River, before crossing it. So it's structured around these three messages that Moses gave to Israel. So the first speech is a review of the past in chapters 1 through 3. Moses reviews how God has been with Israel up to this point. The second speech gives regulations about the, for the present, chapters 4 through 26. So that's the largest segment of the book, regulations for the present, how Israel is to live, live out their faith. And the third speech is the readiness for the future, chapters 27 through 30. So it's talking about the, once again, the blessings and the curses, blessings if, if Israel obeys, curses if they disobey. And then the last portion of the book, chapters 30 through 31 through 34, ties up a few loose ends of, to get the, to finish up the, the book of Deuteronomy and finish up the, the Pentateuch, the Torah. And we read there about the, the death of Moses. Deuteronomy is the book that Jesus quoted most often while on earth. The scarlet thread of redemption is most evident in a prediction Moses made. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. So I've I have long been very interested in the book of Deuteronomy because I, my reasoning is that if it was a favorite Old Testament book of Jesus, it certainly is something that I should look into. Translators capitalize prophet because they re recognize it refers to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The verse 15 that I read to you was about 
what Moses said to Israel, and this is what the Lord said to Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Christ fulfilled the Mosaic ideal. Moses' retelling of the vital features of the law took place on the plains of Moab, east of the Jordan River. The Hebrews had traveled from Kadesh, past the Dead Sea, and were about to enter the Promised Land. The book of Deuteronomy says that Moses died at Moab. He was 120 years old, and he died around 1406 B.C. So the travel tips. Deuteronomy was a reinforcement of the value God places on relationship with him. God not only made it clear what his people must do to draw near close to him, he also showed them that he wanted them to. He wanted to be close to them. And not only showed them how to do it, he indicated that he wanted them to draw close to him. Faith means acting on God's commands. Moses summarized the importance and power of this when he said, choose life that both you and your descendants may live and love the Lord your God, that, that you may obey his voice and that you may cling to him, for he is your life. I, I mentioned before that G Jesus frequently quoted from the book of Deuteronomy. When he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, with each of the three temptations that Satan threw his way, he responded by quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. In response to the first temptation, he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's Deuteronomy 8.3. In response to the second temptation, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That's Deuteronomy 6.16. And in response to the third temptation, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. That's Deuteronomy 6.13. So each time he responded to Satan by quoting from Deuteronomy. With the book of Deuteronomy, we are concluding the Torah, the five books of Moses. And this is just a, a brief summary of what each book's place is in the Torah. Genesis is about God's sovereignty. It gives us the plan of God. God is sovereign because he brought the entire physical universe into existence. And he tells us right there in Genesis that his plan of salvation involves the seed of the woman. Exodus is about God's charity, the redemptive power of God. He brought his people out of bondage in Egypt. Leviticus, God's sanctity. God is holy. Be holy for I am holy. So we learn about the person of God from studying the book of Leviticus. The book of Numbers tells us about God's severity. We see that when Israel failed to obey God in the matter of the spies, they were consigned to wander for 40 years. But God also tells us about his providence. He took care of the Israelites in the land, as, in the wilderness as they traveled. And Deuteronomy tells us about God's solemnity the principles of God. So here, here are some of the things that, that take place 
in the book of Deuteronomy. So I mentioned that, that it's based around the three addresses that Moses gave. So after he gave his final address, then he announced that Joshua would be his successor. And then he entrusted the law to the priests to place with the Ark of the Covenant. Before Joshua was just announced as the successor, but now he's commissioned to be the leader of the Israelites. And Moses puts the book of the law beside the ark. A, part, a portion of the book of Deuteronomy is a song that Moses composed. He sings his song to the Israelites. And then finally, Moses blesses Israel, each of the tribes, and then he dies. So here, here's a map of where all of this takes place, the setting of the book of Deuteronomy. They had gone up here to Kadesh, and then they traveled over to Edom, and they were wanting to go through Edom, but they had to go clear down here and go around Edom and Moab. And then they came up here to uh, Abel Shatim, the, the Acacia Grove, where they camped just before crossing the, the Jordan River. And you can see that Jericho is right over here. So this is where they were camped. This is Mount Nebo. This is where it's located, and we see that in the final scenes of Deuteronomy. So let's talk briefly about some of the principles that are given in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, we learn about the spirituality of God, that he's not a man, that he is spirit. We learn about the uniqueness and unity of God. We learn about the relationship of love between God and his covenant people. That has said that love that, he, that God has for his people. And we also learn that, that love for God is the dynamic principle of the believer's life. Remember what Moses said to the people, that, that, that God and his law are, are your life. That's what keeps you alive. That's what preserves you. That's what energizes you. We learn that idolatry is to be totally shunned. We learn that God's people are to live as, whole, as a holy people. Be holy, for I am holy. We learn that faithfulness is rewarded and violation will be punished. Once again, the, the blessings and the cursings that chapter 28 so emphasizes. And then finally we learn about, we learn that we should retain and obey the truth from God. In other words, remember, don't forget. Now, I need to talk for a little bit about the documentary hypothesis. Because it's amazing how this just permeates everything as far as scholarship about the Old Testament and archaeology about the Old Testament. They all refer to this 
documentary hypothesis, which has been around for more than 100 years. According to the documentary hypothesis, Moses did not write the Pentateuch. It is attributed to four sources, referred to as J-E-D-P. J is the Yahwist, so those, those portions of the, of the Bible that refer to God as Yahweh, they're believed to come from one source. E is the Elohist, so those portions of the Bible that refer to God as Elohim, they are believed to come from a different source. D is the Deuteronomic source, so mainly the, the book of Deuteronomy comes from that source, so they believe. And then P is the priestly source. So much of the book of Leviticus is believed to come from that source. And here's what else they say. The book of Deuteronomy was written shortly after the reforms of the Judean king Josiah around 622 B.C. to justify Josiah's agenda. So I I could have talked about the documentary hypothesis with any of the the books of the the Torah, of the Pentateuch, but I, I chose to talk about it in conjunction with Deuteronomy because the book of Deuteronomy is, is really a central, pivotal book in, in this documentary hypothesis because they, they base all of their ideas on this. The, the idea that they think the book of Deuteronomy was written during the time of King Josiah. Because they think that when this book of the law was discovered in, in the temple, that it had really written, been written shortly before that. So the book was written shortly before that. It was placed in the temple, and, and they, found, they found this book, and voila, look, it's telling us to do exactly what we're doing. So what do you know? That, that, that's the theory. So what that really means is that Deuteronomy is essentially a pious fraud. It's pious in the sense that it attempted to provide historical precedent for religious reform in the time of Josiah. But it's fraudulent fraudulent in the sense that the whole book was artificially produced. So it wasn't produced back in the time of Moses. It was produced eight centuries later, you know, in in the time of Josiah. So it it had not, according to this theory, it had nothing to do with Moses. It was all about uh, validating Josiah's uh, religious reforms. So let's look at some of the arguments for Mosaic authorship why we can believe and be confident that that Moses did write the book. First of all, the claim of the book of Deuteronomy itself over and over again is, these are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel. So over and over again, it tells us that Moses spoke these words, that Moses wrote these words. Secondly, Jesus, Paul, and the author of Hebrews identify Deuteronomy as the law of Moses. So that's pretty good verification that it did indeed come from Moses. And finally, many evangelical writers have made a strong case for the fact that the literary structure of Deuteronomy closely resembles that of 2nd millennium B.C. political treaties. That's the time of Moses. It doesn't resemble political treaties from the first century or first millennium B.C., the time of Josiah. It, it 
It uh, resembles uh, those treaties from the time of Moses, from the uh, second millennium BC. Uh, what I'm talking about here is the the covenants, the treaties that a suzerain would make with his vassals. In other words, the king, a ruler, would make a treaty, a covenant with his with those people who were subject to him. And when he laid out the stipulations of that treaty, that covenant, he did he followed a certain formula. And the Bible uses a very similar formula to, to, to detail the agreement, the covenant that God made with his people Israel. And we can take a look at some of the components of that, of that agreement, of that covenant, that treaty. First, there is a preamble or title. And this sets forth who the parties are. In, in the case of God and Israel, those are the parties, God and Israel. And that is followed by an historical prologue. So we see that in, in Deuteronomy also, that you go back and you, you detail the interactions between God and his people Israel. Then there are the stipulations. And by stipulations with regard to Deuteronomy and the covenant that God made with his people, we're talking about the laws, about the instructions that God gave to his people. And that, of course, is, is the bulk of the book of Deuteronomy, is, is those instructions that God gave to his people. Then there is setting forth of the deposition of the text. Okay, we have this, this document, we have this agreement, what do you do with it? Well, what kings would typically do is they would put one copy in, in their temple and the other copy in the temple of the, the people who were their subjects. Well, the, the book of Deuteronomy specifies that the text, the agreement between God and his people, is to be placed in the, in the tabernacle, ultimately in the temple, but in the tabernacle beside the Ark of the Covenant. So it tells us what to do with the text. And then it talks about the public reading of the text. Every so often there was, was to be a public reading of this agreement so that everybody was clear about what was, what was being agreed to and being reminded what was agreed to. And the book of Deuteronomy tells us that every seven years, they were to read the book of the law publicly. There was to be a public reading of it. Next, witnesses were summoned. Now, what pagan kings would do, of course, is that they would summon their pagan gods to be witnesses of this agreement. Well, of course, God didn't do that. God said, I call heaven and earth to witness against you. So God called all of creation to be a witness of this agreement that he made between himself and Israel. And then finally, there are blessings and cursings. So they set forth that if you obey this covenant, if you, com if you comply with its requirements, you will receive blessings. If you disobey, if you don't comply with this covenant, you will receive curses. So the, the entire agreement, the entire covenant that God made with the people of Israel follows that formula that we see from the second millennium B.C.
for the Jewish people, chapter 6, verse 4, is extremely important. The Jewish people recite this every day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This uh, verse often enters into the, the whole debate about the Trinity and how there can be one God but in several persons. But the word translated one in this verse is achad, which doesn't mean an absolute singularity but a compound unity. It's actually the same, the same word that's used back in Genesis when it talks about husband and wife becoming one flesh. So there isn't just one person. There's more than one person, but it is one. They are one. But you might also translate this verse as, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. So in that case, it really wouldn't be talking about the, the nature of God at all. It's talking about our singular exclusive devotion to him so that the Lord is our God and no, no other God is our God, just the Lord alone. He is unique. Another verse in that passage is chapter 6, verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Jesus referred to this as the first and great commandment. So once again, Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy. In this same passage, chapter 6, we learn that the Israelites are not to forget the law of God. And to assure that they don't forget the law of God, it says you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And then I have the word tefillin. I'll show you in a minute what that means. And then it also says you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And the word I have there is mezuzah. So this, this is how the Jewish people historically have understood these passages. You shall bind them on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So that's why the Jewish people have tefillin. They put God's law in a little leather box on their forehead, and they have a leather strap tied to keep the, the box in place. And they, they do this when they're praying. And then you see also that there's a little box here on, on his arm. And then there's this leather strap here is wound around the arm to keep the to keep that box in place. So that is tefillin. And there's just another picture of the of the tefillin. So you have the 
the straps to keep the one on your head in place and there are other straps that you wind around your arm to keep the other one in place. And then there is the mezuzah where you put them on, on your gates, on your doorposts and on your gates. So if you come to a, a Jewish, an Orthodox Jewish home, you'll see a little object that's nailed on to the, fastened on to the, the doorway, on the right side of the doorway. The uh, Ashkenazi Jews, the, the Jews of, of Europe, Eastern Europe, they, they put their mezuzah at an angle like that. I understand that the Sephardic Jews, the Jews of the Middle East and North Africa, they, they put their mezuzah horizontal. So there's a, a difference there. Now, a mezuzah can be made of different materials. They might be made of wood. They might be made of metal. They might be made of ceramic. They might be made of stone. Um, some of them are very simple. Some of them are more ornate. But that's the mezuzah containing the instruction of God. Over and over again, Israel is warned, beware lest you forget. And Bob has talked about this many times, about how important it is to remember the promises of God. Don't forget. God wanted his people to remember the blessings that living by his commands carried. Even if it meant looking back to the wilderness, and you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Remembering is an ongoing theme in Deuteronomy. If we were to ask Moses what, what things are a threat to our relationship with God, through chapter 8 of Deuteronomy, he would tell us, don't let memory fail you. Remember, do not forget. Don't let vanity possess you. Your heart will become proud. Don't let prosperity intoxicate you. Your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase. And don't let security deceive you. You're dwelling in safety, so you begin experimenting with other religions, other gods. If you follow other gods and worship and bow down to them. When the Israelites did that, they were headed for trouble. We also read about this land that Israel is coming into. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a, a land of olive trees and honey. So these are the seven species, the, the seven different crops that were produced in the, in the promised land. And that word honey, uh, scholars don't believe that that is the kind of honey that comes from bees. That's actually a, a paste that's made from dates. So it, it too is one of, the, one of the crops of the promised land. The seven species. There we have a picture of the seven species. Wheat and barley and olives and pomegranates and figs and 
grapes and dates, the seven species. This is a, a map showing the, the crops grown in the promised land, where they, where they were grown. Um, you'll notice that most of the wheat and barley, the grains, are grown down here. Um, a few years ago, I gave a, a two-part Bible study on the geography of Israel, and I talked about the Shvela. So along the coast, you have the coastal plains, and then further inland, you have the high, rugged, steep hills of the, of the mountains, the central mountain range. And in between, you have an area of low, rolling hills called the Shvela. And to raise grain, you need flat area, you know, land that's relatively flat. So that's why we see that the grain was, was grown mostly in here. And of course, this was the area where the, the Philistines and the Israelites came into contact and conflict. And then further inland, in, in the high, rugged, steep hills, we see the hillside crops. That's where the hillside crops are grown. The, the, uh, the grapes and the olives and the figs and the pomegranates, they're called hillside crops because you can grow them on the, on the side of a hill. In fact, grapes do best when, when they have a when they are grown on a, a place where they have good drainage. We don't want them in a flat, marshy, swampy area. And then finally, the, the dates, the date palms, they grow in more desert areas like around Jericho and along the Dead Sea. That's the, the seven species. Um, another thing we'll read about in the book of Deuteronomy are things which are done each year in every number of years, three years, seven years. There was a tithe that was to be collected each year for the, the maintenance of the, the tabernacle or the temple. There was a triennial tithe at the end of every three years. The purpose of the triennial tithe, the tithe at the end of every three years, the purpose of that tithe was to help out the, the Levites, the, the widows, the orphans, the needy of the land. At the end of every seven years, there was to be a remission of debts. Debts were remitted every seven years. Also in the seventh year, slaves were released. We're talking about Israelite slaves. And basically there were two reasons that, a, that an Israelite might become a slave. Either he was destitute, he was impoverished, and so he sold himself into slavery, uh, or he would sell his son or his daughter into slavery. Or the other case would be that of a criminal, because a criminal had to make restitution for his crime, and if he couldn't do that, of course, well, then he became a slave to, to pay off his debt to society. Uh, the sacrifice of firstlings, that was done each year. And then finally, there were the pilgrimage feasts, the pilgrimage festivals. And they were three times a year. Once you become aware of the prevalence of the chiastic structure, remember the chiastic structure that, 
that Bob and Eric have shown to us so many times. Once you become aware of that structure, you're, you're looking for it everywhere, and you you find it too. Um, so in this in this passage, there there is a, a chiastic structure. So first we have the giving of the tithe, then the release of the debts, the release of the slaves, and the giving of the firstlings. So you have that where you work your way in and then back out again. And, and there are parallels between the giving of the tithe, the giving of the firstlings, release of debts, release of slaves. I'll show you another chiastic structure in Deuteronomy a little bit later. Um, this is an interesting thing that Deuteronomy takes up. Few passages in Deuteronomy, or elsewhere, anywhere in the Bible, remind us more forcibly of the difference between the ideal world in which we wish to live and the sinful fallen world in which we do live. Then does Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Verse 4 says that there should be no poor among you. Verse 7 says, on the other hand, if there is a poor person in your community. So it says there shouldn't be any poor, but it recognizes that there probably will be poor. And verse 11 says, there will always be poor people in the land. And this was quoted by Jesus in, in Matthew and, and in Mark, that the poor you always have with you. Thus, Scripture can say almost in one breath that there should not be any poor and that there will always be the poor. This is a reminder that biblical law is addressed to people where they are rather than where they ought to be. Last week when I covered Leviticus, I referred you to Leviticus chapter 23, which talks about all of the feasts of the Lord. But Deuteronomy gives us some special instructions about special feasts, certain feasts. So it gives us information about Passover and the days of unleavened bread. They're, they're very closely connected. And also about first fruits, what in Hebrew is called Shavuot, or which you know from the New Testament as Pentecost. Well, there's actually two first fruits. I mean, there's the first fruits during the days of unleavened bread, but the, the Feast of Weeks is sometimes called the Feast of First Fruits as well. The Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, meaning 50th. So it comes after seven weeks. But then there's, there's two fall holy days, the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement, which are not pilgrimage festivals. But then this last feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot, is a pilgrimage feast. So we have Passover and Unleavened Bread, we have the Feast of Weeks, and then we have Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, being the pilgrimage feast. And I have noticed that there's a parallel between these three pilgrimage feasts and our lives as believers. So, first there was the Feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread. Then there was the Feast of Weeks. And then there's the Feast of Tabernacles. Those are the three pilgrimage festivals. 
But what I'm talking about when I when I talk about the, the parallels between these three pilgrimage feasts and our our lives, our experience as believers. The feast of Passover speaks of our past from our from our perspective right now, our past, when we received salvation, because Christ, our Passover lamb, is sacrificed for us. So that parallels uh, the past aspects of our lives as believers. The Feast of Weeks pictures the present, sanctification. Now, Eric has suggested that perhaps a better word is transformation because the the two aspects of sanctification are easily confused because most of the time in the New Testament when it talks about sanctification, it's talking about a sanctification that occurs when we believe, when we become Christians. There are a few times when it's talking about sanctification as being an ongoing process throughout our Christian lives. That's the sanctification that we're talking about here. And so it might be more appropriate to call it transformation, how we are being conformed more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. And then finally, there's the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, that's the future, our glorification, when we receive our glorified bodies. And Zechariah 14 talks about how we will celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles in the Millennial Kingdom. With regard to these pilgrimage festivals, it says three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. Now, this doesn't mean that only males could attend the pilgrimage festivals. Participation, participation of adult males was mandatory. They were required to attend the pilgrimage festivals. For other members of the household, it was voluntary, especially for at-risk individuals such as young children or pregnant nursing mothers for whom a long pilgrimage to the sanctuary would be too taxing. So it wasn't that women and children couldn't come to the pilgrimage festivals. It was just allowance was made for them. They didn't have to go if they couldn't. Here's, here's an interesting parallel for you. There is a parallel between the list of those exempted from military service in Deuteronomy chapter 20 and the list of excuses given by those who declined the invitation to the banquet in Luke 14. You're familiar with that? These people were invited to the banquet and one said, well, I've, I've just gotten married, I can't come. The other one said, well, I've just got a new yoke of oxen, I haven't tried them out yet. So they, they gave excuses why they couldn't come. And the excuse, excuses that they gave are very similar, are very parallel to the uh, reasons that people weren't required to uh, provide military service. So why is that? Why use a battle or war in association with a banquet? How are these two connected? Possibly because a good bit of scripture points to two phenomena at the end of the age, a battle and a banquet, the great and terrible day of our Lord and the marriage supper of the Lamb. So 
the, the reasons that people give for why they can't participate are very similar. As you're reading some of these laws in the book of Deuteronomy, some of them might seem like just a hodgepodge of, of random laws regarding this and regarding that. But if you look more closely, you will often find that there's some word or some theme that ties these various laws together. So, for example, uh, Deuteronomy 22.3, So shall you do with his garment. And it's talking about if you find a garment that somebody has lost, you're supposed to return it to the owner. So shall you do with his garment. And then 22.5 talks about how a man shall not put on a woman's garment. So you might think, well, these two laws have nothing to do with one another, but they both have that common theme of garment. That's the, the thing that ties them together. The emphasis on garments is continued into the laws about wool and linen. That also has to do with garments. About tassels on the cloak. I, uh, I brought a one of these prayer shawls with, with me when I was talking about uh, the book of Numbers. In, in Numbers 14, we read about this also. And this is reiterated in, in Deuteronomy, the tassels on the cloak. And that has to do with a garment. And then also the, the garment of a virgin. It's talked about a little later on. So there, this theme of garment, you can see, runs through that passage, that section. Now, the laws about not mixing two diverse kinds. There are three brief laws about not mixing. Two kinds of seeds. Uh, the ox and the ass. You're not, you're not to plow with two different animals, the ox and the ass, together, yoked together. And it talks about uh, not combining wool fibers and linen fibers in a, in a single garment. So there's this thing about not mixing two different kinds. And the laws about not mixing serve as a prelude to laws on chastity, which, if you think about it, is also uh, dealing with unlawful mixing at the sexual level. So the, the laws on chastity uh, deal with, with six different situations. First of all, it deals with the charge of infidelity brought by a husband against a wife that turns out to be false. So the husband accuses his wife of being unfaithful, but it proves to be false. So it deals with that situation. And then it deals with the procedures to be followed if such a charge is substantiated, if it is proved to be true. Then the situation of adultery with a married woman then with the intercourse with an engaged virgin in the city versus the next one, intercourse with an engaged virgin in the countryside. So this is a, a, a woman who is not yet married, but, but she is engaged. And the two situations are treated differently because in the city she can cry out and someone will come to her rescue. In the country, if she cries out, no one hears her. And then uh, intercourse with an unengaged virgin. So we have two examples of intercourse with a, an engaged virgin and then 
finally with intercourse with an unengaged virgin. The first three of these have as their focus married women, and the last three are concerned with unmarried women. And this is the other chiastic structure that I was talking to you about. Because the penalties for these violations have a, a chiastic structure. In the first case, uh, a woman accused of infidelity but was not found to be guilty. Well, then the, the husband who had made these accusations had to pay damages to the woman's father. In the uh, case where a woman was guilty of being unfaithful, she was executed. And the, uh, in the next case, the, the case of, a, of adultery with a married woman, both the woman and the man were executed. Um, in the uh, case of a, of a woman and a man having sex, and the woman is, is engaged, uh, both the man and the woman were executed if it was in the city. If it was in the countryside, just the man was ex executed because the woman couldn't do anything about it if she wanted to. And then finally, the, the case where, where a man had uh, sexual intercourse with a unengaged virgin, he had to pay damages once again to the woman's father. When I read about these penalties, the thing that I always think about is you notice that there's not any inflation because the, the fine remains exactly the same. So there isn't any change in the value of 100 shekels or 50 shekels like there is in our society today. Next, we'll, we'll read about uh, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And I talked about this when we when we covered the book of Joshua. Because in the book of Joshua, we read about this actually being carried out. But it wasn't something that Joshua just dreamed up after Israel entered the promised land. It was something that, that Moses carefully instructed him to do. Moses gave him this, these instructions before he got to the promised land to, to have half the people stand on Mount Gerizim and half the people stand on Mount Ebal. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. When you have crossed over the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these shall stand on Mount Ebal for the curse, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan and Naphtali. And there was the, the picture that I showed you before of the actual mountains, Mount Ebal on the right, Mount Gerizim on the left. They're located at the village of Shechem, which today is the village of Nablus. Um, and I mentioned that this was the first place where Abraham camped when he entered the Promised Land. It's where Jesus met with the Samaritan woman at the well. It's also where the body of Joseph was buried when the Israelites came into the Promised Land. And there's a, a map with an inset here 
where, where Shechem is located. It's north of Jerusalem, north of Jericho, in this area here. And so this is the little inset, and I enlarged that on the next slide. And I pointed out to you that here's Shechem in the middle, there's Mount Ebal, the curses, Mount Gerizim, the blessings. And I'm not sure that I know totally what the answer is, but it's interesting that on Mount Gerizim, which represents the blessings, you have the the tribes which are descended from uh, Jacob's actual wives, Rachel and Leah. Whereas up here, representing the curses, you have the tribes descended from the two handmaids of Rachel and Leah. This is Mount Nebo, located right here. The Israelites were camped here at uh, Shatim or Abel Shatim, meaning the Acacia Grove. That's where the Israelites were camped just before they crossed the Jordan River and attacked Jericho. And this area was called the Plains of Moab. But there's a mountain here called Mount Nebo, or also it's also called Pisgah. And Moses was not allowed to go into the Promised Land. He was allowed just to view the Promised Land from this mountain. From atop that mountain, there's a, a view from Mount Nebo into the Promised Land. One of the uh, commentaries that I, that I read about this said that, that he thinks that Moses viewed the Promised Land on, on a winter day. Because in the winter, after a rain, the sky is much clearer and you can see further. Much of the rest of the year, especially in the summer, there's a, there's a heat haze that, that rises over the land and you, you can't see as far as well. So he thought that very likely it was on a, on a winter day that, that Moses looked into the Promised Land. Here's some of the things that we see as we look into the Promised Land. So over here there's the Eastern Desert and then there's the, the Transjordanian Mountains. Then there's this, this very deep rift where we have the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River and the Dead Sea. It's like a big gash in the Earth's surface. And you probably know that the Dead Sea is the lowest spot on Earth. And then over on the other side of the Jordan River, there's the central mountain range that runs north and south. And there are, there are mountains in, in Judea and into Samaria. And there are some more mountains up, up north here in, into Galilee. But at this point right here, these mountains which run north and south uh, verge off to the, to the northwest and they go right out to the sea. This is called the Carmel Ridge. And this is Mount Carmel where Elijah was to have his famous run-in with the prophets of Baal. And then right next to that is the Jezreel Valley where the, the armies will gather at Armageddon, it's called, Armageddon. And then they will move south to Jerusalem where that final battle will take place.
as far as the things that make you go, hmm, there are actually several in, in Deuteronomy. And the reason for that is that Deuteronomy seems to say things that don't quite agree with what Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers say. I, I talked last time about, um, when I was covering the book of Leviticus, I talked about some, some disagreement that seems to, to take place between Leviticus and Deuteronomy, having to do with eating meat, because it seems like Deuteron- Leviticus is saying that you can only eat meat that's slaughtered at the tabernacle, at the temple or tabernacle. And Deuteronomy seems to be saying, no, you can eat meat anywhere. You don't have to come to the, to the central location. And of course, the, the, the way that you reconcile those two is that there's a difference in circumstances. In the book of Leviticus, all Israel was, was gathered around the tabernacle. So it wasn't a problem to, to take your offerings to the tabernacle, to, to slaughter animals at the tabernacle. Whereas Deuteronomy is giving instructions for what Israel is to do once they enter the promised land. Because once they enter the promised land, Israel is widely dispersed. And if the only place where you could slaughter animals was at the tabernacle, well, most, uh, most Israelites would be vegetarians for most of the year. So allowance was made for sacrificing or slaughtering animals in other places besides just at the tabernacle. Sacrifices were, were just done at the tabernacle, but you could slaughter and eat meat anywhere in the country. So the apparent discrepancy that I chose to deal with here is this. Who is responsible for Moses not being able to go into the promised land? Is it Moses' fault or is it the people's fault? Uh, Deuteronomy says, even this is what, what Moses is saying to the Israelites, even with me, the Lord was angry on your account and said, you also shall not go in there. And then a little further on, it says, he says, uh, but the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. So Deuteronomy seems to be saying, well, Moses wasn't allowed to go into the promised land, but it's really the people's fault. It's really the fault of the Israelites. But if we go back to the book of Numbers, and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin, when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy at the waters before their eyes. So the book of Numbers, uh, in, in describing this incident, doesn't say anything about Israel's responsibility. It just talks about Moses being responsible for disobeying God and therefore not being able to go into the promised land. Does Numbers attach personal responsibility to Moses while Deuteronomy exonerates Moses 
and pictures him as the one who, although innocent, bears the penalty for the sins of others. The passages in Deuteronomy are simply saying that Israel was Moses' stumbling block. It was precisely on account of their bickering and complaining that Moses was driven to his tantrum where he struck the rock and thus the divine condemnation for doing that. So it's not, it's not a case of either or. It's a case of both and. The Israelites did drive Moses to the point where he did a sinful act. But Moses is still culpable for committing that sinful act. So the, so the Israelites may have driven him to it, but he's still responsible. He's still culpable. He can't say, well, the people made me do it. He can't say that any more than Aaron could say, well, the people made me make this gold calf. I, did, I wasn't going to do it, but they made me do it. Well, he's still responsible for his actions. And so is Moses. So, that is the book of Deuteronomy. I'll close with a word of prayer here. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you continued to work with your people, Israel, despite their failings and their flaws and their shortcomings. You persisted in working with them so that our Messiah, our Savior, could come from the people of Israel and so that in the future Israel will be saved and Israel will come to know you. We're thankful thankful that you have laid out that plan for us, that you have given us knowledge and instruction regarding that plan and encouragement. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.